0: All right, I think we got everybody settled. I want to share with you a, uh, a brief series of symbols, and let's see how many of these symbols you're able to identify. Anybody who identifies all of these symbols will automatically receive a hall pass entitling you to be exempted from today's sermon. So the stakes are high. Are you ready? All right, we're going to start off with an easy one that probably all of you will get. Who can tell me what this symbol is? All right, you're warmed up now. The second one is a little more difficult, but still not bad. What does this symbol represent? Yes, you probably don't ever think of it. That is the power of symbols, right? But subconsciously, you know when you see that shape, this is an on, off button. Who can tell me what this symbol represents? You're such hip people, right? (laughs) I had to look it up, but hey! (laughs) This is the symbol that Prince went to when he stopped using his name, Prince. Now, this fourth symbol, you have seen many times, usually on the north side of town. Who can tell me what this symbol means? <laughs> yes, you're driving through Carmel, approaching a roundabout, and all of a sudden, you should see how my 90-year-old dad tries to navigate the roundabouts on the north side of town. Look out, I hope you're not following him. Here's a symbol that, given the news we've had the past couple of weeks, is very topical. Let's see if you recognize it. This is what? (laughs) Alien activity area, beware. Okay, are you ready now for the final symbol? The sixth symbol, I don't think anybody's gonna get this. What does this symbol mean? It means, warning, bad joke ahead. You have been warned. All right. <laughs> Did anybody get all of these six symbols correct? So raise your hand. All right, Martha, come forward. I'm going to present your I'm I'm going to present your official exemption certificate to Martha Aguirre. It reads as follows: Hear ye, hear ye. Be it known to all people that the person bearing this certificate is hereby exempted from today's powerful wonderful brilliant sermon i don't know who wrote this and shall suffer no spiritual consequences from their absence from this sermon now or throughout eternity issued on the authority of his holiness the right reverend jeff minor (laughs) you can use it today or any future week that the spirit should uh... Uh, All kidding aside, symbols are all around us. A symbol is something that represents or stands for something else in shorthand. We swim in a sea of symbols, and the Bible is no exception. The Bible is full of literary symbols. Today's Bible passage that you just heard read contains two of the greatest biblical literary symbols our mission for today is to decode those symbols so as to unlock the meaning of today's passage and in the process we're going to learn two critical life lessons let's begin with a prayer God thank you for shining your light into our life thank you for the gift of your holy word Life is confusing. Life is complicated. Life is hard. Teach us something today that will help us better navigate through the hard, difficult times of life. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Daniel, chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So, this is our first great literary symbol, Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. A cubit is 18 inches, so that means this statue stood 90 feet tall by nine feet wide, tall and skinny in traditional ancient obelisk fashion. If you've ever seen the Washington Monument and the proportions of that, picture that in your mind. During this same era, the era of Nebuchadnezzar, the Greek historian Herodias lived and he wrote about a great golden statue that was set up in Babylon, an image of the god Bel, B-E-L, which was the chief god of Babylon and would ultimately give rise to the Greek god Zeus. So in all likelihood, this great golden statue was a likeness of the god Bel. It might have looked something like this. Historians tell us that it was not unusual for ancient kings to set up great statues. It was a way of communicating to the citizens that they governed that the power of the king and his government was everywhere. And so Nebuchadnezzar has this great statue built and when it's completed, he summons a multitude of his government officials to the plain of Dura for the dedication of this statue what happens next is told to us in Daniel 3:3. 3, 3. When they were standing before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the herald proclaimed aloud, "You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the instruments play, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up." So, you see what's happening here, right? This is A loyalty test. This is Nebuchadnezzar using the power of the pressure to conform, the power of peer pressure, the deep human psychological need to belong and to not make waves. This is Nebuchadnezzar's way of sending a powerful message to his government officials that we're all going to think alike, speak alike, and act alike. We are all Babylonians. And so the pressure government officials to bow down and worship is enormous. We've all been there. Figuratively speaking, at one time or another, we've all been and will all again be on the plane, of Dura, feeling the pressure to be like everybody else around us. Back in the uh, early days of television, one of the most popular shows was called Candid Camera. It began running in 1948 and lasted. It endured consistently into the 1970s. Some of you are old enough to remember it. Not me, but some of you are old enough to remember it. Actually, I do remember as a child watching it, the the, the MO of Candid Camera was they would put unsuspecting strangers into awkward and odd situations usually there would be candid camera actors who would set up the situation all the while hidden cameras are filming and recording this in one episode there was an unsuspecting person who boarded an elevator then turned to face the front of the elevator as would be normal then three candid camera actors boarded the elevator But all of them stood facing the rear of the elevator. Immediately, you could see the consternation in the face of the unsuspecting person. This was awkward. Why are these people staring at the back when I'm staring at the front? What is wrong with them? At the next floor, when the door opens, a fourth actor gets on, and she too faces the rear of the elevator. At this point, the pressure has become too much to bear, and the unsuspecting person dutifully turns around And faces the back of the elevator, even though he has no idea why he's doing it, he's going along to get along. This same experiment was repeated multiple times in that episode with different unsuspecting people, and guess what? Every single time, every single unsuspecting person eventually turned around and faced the back of the elevator. That is the power of the pressure to conform. And that is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego we're experiencing on the plain of Dura by the way Shadrach Meshach and Abednego are these three close friends of David that we were introduced or of Daniel that we were introduced to in the first 2 chapters of the book of Daniel except in the first 2 chapters we learned their Hebrew names but now in this third chapter they're being called by the Babylonian names that King Nebuchadnezzar gave them as a, yet another reminder that you will conform you will become like us and so when the herald calls out and tells Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that they, along with the others, will bow down, they refuse. They refuse to bow down. Imagine what that must have felt like. Thousands of people are bowing down, and three people are standing up, standing out like sore thumbs. One artist imagines the picture as being something like this. And King Nebuchadnezzar was not amused. He summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him and gave them a warning. I'll give you a second chance, he said. When the music plays again, you will bow down or else. Surrender or be annihilated. The response of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego is recorded in Daniel 3:16. King Nebuchadnezzar they said, "We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But if not, if God chooses not to deliver us, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar is beside himself. He was so filled with rage, his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary and ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the furnace of fire. So it becomes clear what this symbol of Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue represents. The pressure to conform. How culture all around us is constantly pressing us to think, speak, act, behave, and react like everybody else around us. When the heat is on, How will you respond when you know that Jesus says, do it this way, but everybody else around you is doing it this way? Will you turn and face the back of the elevator, or will you stand strong? It's one of my all-time favorite jokes, which, uh, oh. (laughs) What's that doing up there? It is appropriate. Warning, bad joke, around the corner, right? One of my all-time favorite jokes is about a young woman who lived in New York City who was traveling across, driving across the United States to California, and she was driving through West Texas. She stops for lunch at an authentic West Texas diner. She walks into the diner, sits down on a stool at the counter, and orders her lunch. Before long, there's an old geezer who comes walking in to the diner. He's got a big brimmed hat on, rough-hewn hands, big buckle on his belt, cowboy boots. He sits down on the stool next to the young woman and he orders his lunch. The young woman is fascinated. She turns and she says to him, are you a real cowboy? He says to her, well, Missy, I spend all day every day riding horses and mending fences and roping cattle. Yeah, I reckon you could say I'm a genuine cowboy. Cool, she says. Then he says to her, and tell me, Missy, what are you? Oh, she says, I'm what you call a lesbian. A lesbian, he says. What's that? She says, well, let me put it this way. I spend all day, every day, thinking about women. I get up in the morning, I'm thinking about women. I go to work, I'm thinking about women. Come home at night, I'm thinking about women. That makes me a lesbian. Oh, he says, as he drifts off into deep thought. The young woman finishes her lunch and says goodbye. Before long, two tourists come in, sit down on the stools next to the old cowboy. One tourist takes a look at the old guy and says, are you a real cowboy? The old cowboy says, Well, I used to think I was, but I just figured out I'm a lesbian. <laughs> there are <laughs> there are a lot of people in this world who don't know who they are. Am I going to be like that old cowboy, confused? Or am I going to be like that young woman who knew who she was and was going to live her truth? Jesus calls us to be the kind of people who aren't afraid to be different. Jesus calls us to be the kind of people who aren't afraid to live the counterintuitive values that Jesus taught us. When the heat is on, When there's pressure all around you to conform, how will you respond? If you uh, follow international news, you're well aware that in recent decades, President Vladimir Putin uh, of Russia has gradually accumulated more and more power to the point that he's become the de facto dictator of Russia. Especially since his brutal invasion of Ukraine, he's been hell bent on eliminating all sources of independent news in Russia. Recently, some courageous Russian correspondents under persecution fled from Russia to neighboring Latvia to establish a beachhead, an independent news website. So tapping into their deep sources in Russia, these Russian correspondents now in Latvia regularly produce, generate, and post independent news stories about what's happening in and around Russia. They publish in both Russian and English, if you're interested in reading it. This website, this independent news source, is called Meduza, M-E-D-U-Z-A, and has gathered millions of Russian followers. It's the largest source of independent news in Russia. So, three weeks ago, Putin declared Meduza a, an uh, unfriendly organization, which under Russian law means that anyone who now works for Medusa, a publisher, a correspondent, anyone who reads Medusa in Russia, anyone who shares a link to Medusa in Russia, anyone in Russia who advertises or pays a subscription to Medusa, can now be arrested, prosecuted, and thrown in a brutal Russian gulag. When Putin issued this order declaring them an undesirable organization, Medusa published this notice. We would like to say now that we are not afraid and that we do not care about our new status under Russian law, but this is not so. We are afraid for our readers. We are afraid for those who've been cooperating with Medusa for many years. We are afraid for our loved ones and friends still in Russia. Nevertheless, we believe in what we're doing. We believe in freedom of speech. We believe in a democratic Russia. So the stronger the pressure, the tougher we will resist. That's beautiful. That's Daniel chapter three. That's people in our time saying, I will not bend the knee to Baal. I will not bend the knee to Nebuchadnezzar. I will not sacrifice my principles. I can only pray that when I find myself in positions of social pressure, pressuring me to compromise my spiritual values, that I will have half as much courage as those folks associated with Medusa. Most of us are never going to face a Putin or a Nebuchadnezzar, but all of us will face those moments in life when we're feeling powerful pressure to go along, to get along in the those moments When the heat is on, how will you respond? When you find yourself in those places where it's almost unbearable, how will you respond? In her book, A New Normal, Carol Kent, pens a poem that is meant to remind us that as we live this life, there are conscious choices to be made. Her poem goes like this. When despair tries to take me under, I choose life. You see, that's that holy defiance that we're called to. When I wonder what God could be possibly thinking, I choose trust. When I desperately want relief from unrelenting reality, I choose perseverance. When I feel oppressed by my disappointment and sorrow. I choose gratitude. When I want to keep my feelings to myself, I choose vulnerability. When nothing goes according to my plan, I choose relinquishment. When I want to point the finger at somebody, I choose forgiveness. When I want to give up, I choose purposeful action. We could go on to add, when greed tries to grab hold of me, I choose generosity. When sexual temptation is so strong it makes me ache, I choose faithfulness. When hate wells up inside like a volcano, I choose to love my enemy. And on and on it goes. Am I willing to sacrifice for my faith and the values that it represents? Am I willing to do what is right? even? when that is dangerous or costly this is the the point that the golden statue of nebuchadnezzar is trying to communicate to us today it's the first of the two key symbols in today's scripture passage and it's meant to teach us to dare to live counterculturally, to stand strong like shadrach meshach and abednego but That now brings us back to the story and the other great literary image we encounter in the story, the fiery furnace. When King Nebuchadnezzar threatens Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with annihilation, surrender or you will be annihilated, they respond to him and tell him, there's no way we're going to do that. We're going to stand for our principles, no matter what. What happens next is recorded in Daniel 3, verse 23. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, Was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? But I see four unbound walking in the middle of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the fourth has an appearance of a son of God. What a powerful story. This second great literary symbol, the fiery furnace, is meant to represent those fiery trials that we experience in our life when destruction loss death of a dream occurs death of a relationship death of a way of life death or destruction of our health or maybe even our own literal death we naturally fear those fiery trials i mean Who wouldn't, right? But today's scripture passage, Daniel chapter 3, is here to tell us actually we shouldn't fear the fire for two key reasons. First, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego landed in the fiery furnace, they discovered that they were not alone. As the popular worship song says, there was another in the fire there was a fourth person in the fire who looked like a son of the gods you know what that means right this was jesus making an old testament appearance the same jesus who in new testament times after his death and resurrection before his ascension back into heaven said to us we who would follow him lo i am with you always even to the end of the age, and we hear that, and it sounds so beautiful, and it sounds so wonderful, and we want to believe it, but then we are tempted to think, you know, the Bible's got a lot of these kinds of stories in it, but we live in the real world. We live in the here and now, and stuff like that just doesn't happen anymore, but not so fast. Ernest Shackleton was a uh, famous British explorer in the early 1900s. He led three great... Uh, expeditions exploring the Antarctic back when that was the frontier of discovery in the world. The movie Endurance tells the story of one, the true story of one of those expeditions. Shackleton and 27, a crew of 27, boarded the ship Endurance and set out for the Antarctic. When they arrived, they began charting their course of discovery and exploration, sailing across the Sea of Weddell, a perilous seascape. As they were crossing the Sea of Weddell, they began to encounter huge ice floats, which threatened to pierce the hull of their ship, Titanic-like style. So Shackleton made the fateful decision to put down anchor, to stop moving, and wait for the ice floats to pass. But instead of passing, The ice floats grew more and more common and ultimately trapped the ship in place. And for the next 10 months off the grid, out of communication with the rest of the world, they were trapped in the middle of the Sea of Odell on that ship in the freezing cold with their limited rations, can you imagine? Ultimately, the ice became It was pressing so uh, strongly against the hull of the ship, it threatened to pierce it, and so ultimately Shackleton had to give the order to abandon ship. They had three small lifeboats that they loaded up with their remaining rations, and they set out dragging those lifeboats across the ice, looking for open sea. When they finally came to open sea, they set sail in those lifeboats, hoping to find civilization. They ended up landing on Elephant Island, an abandoned, uninhabited island. Time was growing short. Strength was growing short. Desperate times called for desperate measures, and so Shackleton and two volunteers agreed to get in one of the lifeboats and head out to the perilous seas again, hoping to reach the South Georgia Island where they knew there was a whaling station. After several treacherous days at sea, the three of them did reach the South Georgia Island, but they ended up on the wrong side of the island opposite the whaling station. With rations running out and the others taking shelter on Elephant Island, waiting for rescue. They had no time. They had to traverse on foot the South Georgia Island, which in the middle of it had these enormous peaks, wind swept snow swept, hurricane force-like winds and cold. The inhabitants of South Georgia considered the mountains impassable at the time. But in 36 hours, Shackleton and the two crew member volunteers managed to traverse those mountains, reach the whaling station, and send a rescue team back to save the rest of the crew. Later, writing in his journal, looking back on that experience, Shackleton would write these words. During that long and racking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains of South Georgia, it seemed to me often that there were four of us, not three. I said nothing to my companions, but afterwards, one of them said to me, boss, I had the curious feeling that there was another person with us. That's beautiful. You see, what we're talking about today wasn't just for people in Bible times. It's for our times. There is another in the fire standing Next to you In your greatest trials in life You are not alone Jesus The Son of God Is right there with you There is a supernatural presence With you In my darkest hours I have felt that presence You'll know you'll feel it When you experience a presence that is greater than your circumstance. I have felt that presence. You will make it through. So when you find yourself in those situations in life where the heat is so great, you feel like the puppy dog in this picture. When you find yourself in those places in life where the heat is so great, you could bake cookies on the dash of your vehicle. When you are finding yourself in a situation so hot like these kitties, you just want to find shade anywhere. Do not despair because Jesus is with you. Not just that. But there's also a second reason why our passage tells us not to fear those fiery furnace experiences, because you see, oddly enough, going through the fire has a way of freeing us. Look again cl- carefully at what Nebuchadnezzar said, to, or, or rather, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Ab- No. What Nebuchadnezzar said. When, Dan, uh, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire, the king said to his counselors, was it not three men that we threw bound, Keyword, into the fire? But I see four unbound walking in the middle of the fire and they're not hurt and the fourth has the appearance of a son of the gods. They entered the fire bound. They left it free. The cords that bound them were burned away. There is a promise in that for us. Your fiery, fiery trials are not meant to harm you. They have the power to set your spirit free. They have the power to release you to become the best, strongest version of yourself. So don't fear the trials. A, you're not alone, and B, your trials have the power to set you free. Yes, they're scary, but what they can do to your soul can be so beautiful. Years ago, uh, back when magazines were common, I, uh, you know, the kind you hold in your hand, not read online, back in the day, The Billy Graham Association published a quarterly magazine called Whispers from Heaven that told uh, stories of people's real life encounters with God. I once read a story in one of these Whispers from Heaven magazine that made such an impression on me it stuck with me through the years. The story was about a teenage boy who just got his driver's license, who ran off the road, hit a tree, and died in a fiery crash. His mother was beside herself with grief, of course. And in the days that followed, she found herself constantly reliving in her mind what those last moments for her son must have been like as he suffered, trapped in that burning inferno that was his vehicle. One day when she was especially missing her son, she wandered into his room and sat down on his bed. And her eyes landed on his art portfolio that was sitting on his desk. She opened it up and began flipping through his familiar paintings. But when she came to the end of the portfolio, she discovered a picture he had painted that she had never seen before. Apparently he had painted it shortly before his death. The painting was of this inferno, vivid colors, with a spirit rising out of the inferno and an angelic being reaching down to lead that spirit heavenward. Suddenly, that mother's perspective on those last moments of her son's life were transformed. It's as if God's spirit had given her son a prophetic premonition to paint this picture that would remind his mother in the most powerful way that in those last moments of your son's life, he wasn't suffering. His spirit was being set free, and he wasn't alone. As uh, Ronald Reagan once famously said, he slipped the surly bonds of earth and touched the face of God. Do not fear your fiery triumph. Why should we not fear our fiery trials? Two reasons. There, in the midst of the fire, you will encounter a supernatural presence and the fire will free your spirit to soar to new heights. Let me close with this. Back in 1940, when Nazi Germany was rampaging across Western Europe, deep into France, before the United States had entered the war, the French were resisting as best they could. They were joined by... 300,000 British forces. So the Allied forces were doing everything they could, but the Nazis were powerful and they kept pushing them back until the Allied forces, most the vast majority of them, were trapped at Dunkirk, surrounded by the Nazis with the, the English Channel to their back on the northern coast of France. So that the Allied forces now found themselves in a plain of Dura situation, meaning surrender, or be annihilated. In response to a Nazi order to surrender, a British general sent back a response that consisted of three simple enigmatic words. The British officer's response to the Nazis was, but if not, dot, dot, dot. What's that supposed to mean? Well, think about it. Where have we seen that phrase before? Oh, yeah. In today's scripture passage. The Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to Nebuchadnezzar, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and will deliver us from your hand. But if not, if God chooses not to deliver us. We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. You see, this British officer was familiar with Daniel chapter 3. He had internalized its meaning, and now he was living it. Along with all of his comrades, the message to the Nazis was, our God is able to deliver us, but if not, if God chooses not to deliver us, we will not bend the knee we will not yield to your values. Ultimately, they were miraculously delivered as thousands of British citizens got in ordinary fishing boats, rowed or or motored across the English Channel and little little boat by little boat began systematically evacuating hundreds of thousands of these allied soldiers until they were all safe on the other side living to fight another day. They were delivered, but if not, They were never going to surrender. We are called to live with that same defiant spirit. Know who you are. Live with grit. Do not compromise your spiritual principles. And I promise you, the fire will not harm you. And you will not be alone endure, persevere, God is greater than any circumstance you or I will ever face.